0: oh good morning good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel before we get into the word I do want to mention one brief announcement uh, coming up on our calendar when you came in today hopefully you received our bulletin for the month of August I want to mention for our parents, I want to mention that we're having a kids' summer pool party on the 13th of August, and that is something you need to let us know you're coming to so we can get a head count. Uh, Basically, what you want to do is either let me know or email us at info at ccnorthjersey.org. We'll give you directions so you know how to get there. but it's not one of those flash mob things where, you know, you have to call in five minutes before, you know. So so what you want to do is just let us know you're coming. Uh, this is going to be a time for our kids. We did this last year. It was a huge success. The kids loved it. And here's the beauty of it. We're going to have uh, two lifeguards just like we did last year. We hire lifeguards for this event so parents can come, have lunch, and relax while their kids have fun in a beautiful saltwater pool. Okay, we'll leave it at that, but if you need more information or you'd like to come, please email us and then I'll send you the directions and we'll put you down on the list. This is coming up again, August 13th, it's a Saturday, it's in your bulletin at 11 a.m. That's the only announcement I want to mention today, I didn't want to forget to mention that, all right? We're looking forward to having a bunch of kids enjoy themselves for the day. Well, good morning. This morning we continue in Daniel chapter 11 an admittedly difficult passage of scripture to teach in a way that people actually pay attention. But I want to say last week you guys were great. We went through a lot of history because you see Daniel had received a vision and we talked about this 2 weeks ago when we studied chapter 10. An angel appeared to Daniel and received and he received a vision from God's word. Well, actually from a book that's referred to as the book of truth which seems to be the history of the world, the history of all creation, really, but specifically of the nation of Israel, and their history that would take place from the time of Daniel just about to the time of Christ. That's about 500 years. And so 500 years of of, of history in the Middle East was given in written form, or at least he received it and wrote it down, So that Daniel could share that with God's people so that they would know in advance what was going to take place. As we say, Jesus told us things in advance. The scripture reveals to us the future in advance so that we'll believe. So that when these things happen, we'll believe. Our faith will be increased. So the Jews are given some details about some of the major events that would take place in the Middle East over 500 years of history. From the time of Persia where Daniel is a prime minister. He's involved in government there, all the way down, again, to the time of the Romans, shortly before Christ appears, before the Messiah comes. So there's a lot there, and what we've done is we've looked at a lot of it, but we left off in verse 31, and we're going to pick it up in verse 32 of Daniel 11. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we open our hearts and our minds to you, and we ask that as we study in chapter 11 of Daniel, that we would receive more than just information, more than just history and prophecy that's been fulfilled, and even prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled. May we receive an assurance from you that we always receive when we study this book and all the books of the Bible, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you are sovereign over all things, that nothing happens in our world, in our culture, even in our neighborhood, that you haven't seen in advance, which basically means that we can trust you with our future, even through the difficulties and the hard times and the challenges and the sicknesses, the surprises. All of these things are within your control. And so we we breathe a sigh of relief. We take a moment and we thank you that we don't have to panic. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be on pins and needles On the edge of our seats waiting to see what will happen because you've seen the future. You've predicted it because you've seen it in in your mind. You see all things from beginning to end. You're the Alpha and the Omega. So Lord, give us that assurance that you're in control, that we would have peace and joy and the fruit of the Spirit and be effective in these dark days for your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if God is in control, what are you worried about? If you ever worry, and we all do, If you ever worry, the question is, why? We worry because we forget that God is in control. So a book like Daniel, and specifically this section we're going to be studying today, reminds us that God is in control. And then when it begins to reveal things that seem really difficult to swallow about the future, the same is still true. God is in control. Amen? So picking up where we left off last week, I'm going to recap just the one verse, verse 31. In verse 31, we were talking about a man that came and died, a man that appeared in history, in the history of the Middle East. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek, but a leader from the area of Syria and Turkey who actually lived, and we know a lot about him, and we talked a lot about him last week. In verse 31, we we learn about this man, that his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress. Remember, this is in Daniel's future by hundreds of years, but it's in our past by thousands of years. He will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now, this becomes confusing because there are more than just one abomination of desolation. There, there are more than just one events that can fit into this category. An abomination that causes desolation is a hated thing by God that causes the sacrifices in the temple to cease. Now, if we think about the history of the Jews, there have been several things that have happened that have caused that to happen. For example, if we start even just here. And there were other times even before this, but but let's just stop a minute. If we just talk about what was being predicted by Daniel, that a Greek leader from the kingdom to the north of Israel, called the king of the north in this scripture, caused the temple sacrifice to cease in the past, then that has been fulfilled. So there's already been an abomination of desolation, and we know that what he did, what this man did, was falsely agree for peace, and then desecrated the Jewish temple and destroyed the city. And when he did this, he did this in retaliation against the Jews that had appealed to Rome for assistance against him. They contacted Rome and they asked Rome to hold him in check because of the damage he was causing in their part of the world, and they did. But then he showed favor, this evil man showed favor to the treacherous Jews that supported him and forsook God's covenant. There were wicked, evil people in Jerusalem at that time that turned their back on God and his people and his temple. And they helped Antiochus. And what they did was pretty awful. They set up a statue of Zeus in the Jewish temple, and they sacrificed a pig upon the altar, desecrating the temple and causing the sacrifices to cease until the temple could be restored, until it could be reconsecrated. And he declared, this man Antiochus, he declared that he alone should be worshipped, and he caused the sacrifice to cease. This took place in 167 B.C., so, you know, about 150 years before Christ. So all of this is taking place, and maybe you're familiar with this, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, uh, the, the holiday referred to as Hanukkah. The Jews celebrate Hanukkah because it was after this that they were able to restore the temple, light the lamps, and they celebrate the miracle of the lamps, and without getting into all the particulars of Hanukkah, just to say that that's what took place after this. <clears throat> so Hanukkah is a celebration of the reconsecration of the temple after the abomination that caused desolation. Now here's the situation, though. That's not the end of it. Because when Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation in the Gospels, he talked about it as yet future. Now how could that be when we know it took place in the past, about 167 years before 170 years or so, maybe a little bit longer, close to 200 years. Before Jesus said it, it had happened. And this gets to the thought that I've shared with you before, that Jewish prophecy, biblical prophecy, is thematic. That means it has a theme. That theme is repeated over and over again. For example, I'll use an example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We all know, probably, if we grew up in Sunday school, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to a statue. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fiery furnace, and they survived, and of course, they were fine after that. But that's a theme. The idea, the theme is that Jews are, are, are forced to bow down to an image. That, that's the theme. Well, that continues throughout history, through various different times in history, to so ultimately, in the time of the end, during a period we call it Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years of prophecy that were given to Daniel in chapter 9 of this book. It's during that time that Jews and all people are forced to bow down to an image of an Antichrist who will come, and if they don't, they're beheaded for their faith, Christians and Jews alike. So you see, the theme is repeated, and it's been repeated throughout history. You can can pretty much say that the Spanish Inquisition kind of carried on that theme, as well as the Holocaust, persecution of Jews throughout the centuries. So the theme appears in history or in prophecy, then it's fulfilled partially, 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 and then ultimately it's fulfilled in a way where it has been completely fulfilled. For example, Jesus coming on the cross for our sins. The foreshadow, the theme was animals being sacrificed for the sins of his people at the temple. But that's just a theme, that's just a a, a thought that points to Jesus because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. They could only cover sin, according to the book of Hebrews. But that theme points to Jesus who would come and die on the cross for our sins, and there remains no more sacrifice for sins because it is finished. Amen? Amen? So that particular theme is complete. It doesn't need to be repeated, and it won't be. But it was repeated many times, many, many times, up until the point where Jesus fulfilled that theme, if you will, and prophecy was fulfilled. There are many themes in prophecy that have not yet been fulfilled. i mentioned a few already. One of them is the abomination that causes desolation. And so I'm giving you that background so that when we talk about this, you understand that there is a a theme that took place, a fulfillment of this prophecy that took place in the past in 167 BC. But it foreshadows, points to, or is a type of, a later complete fulfillment is everyone with me? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Now, now you'll be able to understand what we're talking about a little bit better. And as we get into verse 32 this morning, we read that with flattery, he, that is this man who would fulfill this prophecy, again, this was written many, what, 536 BC? So we're going ahead to 167 BC. There's no way Daniel could have known these things. It says of this man that with flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but... The people who know their God will firmly resist him. You know, I'm always encouraged when I read a scripture that says, The people that know their God will firmly resist him. Who is him? The devil. The world. The forces of wickedness. The spiritual forces of wickedness in our world. You know, there are people alive today that are resisting those forces. Sadly, many churches are not, but we are. We're not going to bow. We're like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't bow. We only bow and kneel to God. And there were people alive at the time that this abomination of desolation took place in 167 BC, and they're at the center of the Hanukkah celebration. They're called the Maccabees. And I want to read a little bit more. It's a family of people called the Maccabees. The name in Greek actually means the hammer. The hammer makes me think of Thor, but the hammer. And they they were a tough group of people. And they're inspirational people. And you can read about their history in First and Second Maccabees, which are books that are not included in our Bibles, but are books that are well-known. And you can read about the history. It's not divine history. It's not inspired history. But it is history. And so we learn a lot from there. But it goes on to say that in verse 33, it says, those who are wise will instruct many. Though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. This is speaking of this group of people and their rebellion. And when they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end for it will still come. At the appointed end. And what I think the angel is saying, and Daniel's recorded uh, for us, is that these things will be fulfilled, but there's still a future fulfillment in the time of the end. And that's kind of what I've already shared with you. Now, let's just talk about what took place in the past. Going back to, you know, 167, uh, actually, the Maccabees uh, were, were all around and a and force to be reckoned with in Israel or or Jude at that time, from about 165 B.C. to 65 B.C. So that's about 100 years, and that was all before Rome came in to the Middle East, and then, of course, when Jesus is born, Rome is dominant in the Middle East. But at this point, we know this about Antiochus. He used flattery to corrupt those treacherous Jews that forsook God's covenant. So what's the theme? There's going to be Jews who reject God, and there are going to be Jews that are faithful to God. Are you with me? That's what took place in the past. That will happen again in the future. And Antiochus fulfilled Daniel's vision of the little horn in chapter 8. And if you weren't here, many of you weren't, we studied that in explicit detail, and we learned some things. I'm just going to recap it for you. What Daniel said would happen in chapter 8 happened years later. You see, what happened is the Jews rebelled against their God, not all of them, but some of them, in wickedness, and they embraced Hellenism. If you're not familiar with Hellenism, Hellenism is a term that defines Greek culture. It's, it's a term that comes from Helen of Troy, who was actually a Greek. A little confusing. But Hellenism, the idea that this, the Greeks and their culture were so pervasive that many of the Jews embraced it. They became worldly, the way many Christians have today. They became worldly. And because of this, they rebelled against God. Now, Antiochus was described as a stern-faced master of intrigue. And he was. He used flattery. He used used deception, this man who actually lived in history. He was responsible for terrible atrocities against the Jewish people. As I go through this, you should see a a repetitive theme. Because while we probably, most of us, were not alive, I think some of us might have been, but most of us were not alive during the Holocaust or the Second World War, you know about it. It's recent enough that you know it took place. And there are many times in human history where the Jews experience these things in a repetitive way. And you ask the question, well, why do those things happen? Well, I think it's pretty obvious why those things happen. When God's people turn their back on him, God allows them to suffer the consequences of their sin. God is not the author of pogroms in Russia or holocausts in Europe or even the things that take place with terrorism in the Middle East. Those things are the consequences of a people who are called by God who have not embraced their God. Now, not all Jews. We're not saying all Jews have rejected God, but most and many have. And so the consequences of those things is that God allows these things to take place. It's happened in the past. Sadly, it will happen in the future. And so that's what we're seeing here. He was responsible for these terrible atrocities. In fact, his name, Antiochus Epiphanes is a name that they didn't call him. They actually called him Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the madman in Greek. The madman by the Jews. That's what he was called. And he sacrificed the pig, as we said, on the temple altar, put that image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, the holy place, and he referred to himself as Theos Epiphanes, which means God in the flesh. Of course, in his mind, it was Zeus in the flesh. He actually Talk about a God complex. He actually considered himself to be God and wanted to be worshipped. That's why he got rid of the temple. You can't worship that God. You have to worship me. Now, that's a repetitive theme that comes up again in the book of Revelation in the time of the end, which is what we're told. Okay, so Daniel 8 told us that he would start small but grow in power to the south and to the east until he reached the land of Israel. That's exactly what happened. The scripture told us that he would become very strong, but not by his own power, and that is he would deceive people into supporting him. And he was very good at it. He was a very good deceiver. He caused astounding devastation in Israel and succeeded in whatever he did against the Jews, and he destroyed the mighty men and the holy people of Israel, which is what Daniel said would happen. He also overthrew some of the rulers of God's people of Israel, and he destroyed them. And he caused deceit to prosper and considered himself superior to all others. He is in every way an antichrist. However, at that time, he's just a shadow of the antichrist that's predicted to come in the future. He destroyed the Jews by deceiving them into a false sense of security. Jesus told us when they say, peace, peace, sudden destruction comes. Again, reoccurring theme. You should see this very clearly. He set himself up to be as great as the high priest, took away the daily sacrifice from the high priest, and brought low the place of the sanctuary, as we've already talked about. And the rulers of Israel uh, and the daily sacrifice were given over to Antiochus because of their rebellion. When he desecrated the temple, it was in judgment against Israel for rejecting their God. And God used this wicked king to judge Israel for their many sins the way he used Babylon to judge Israel for their many sins. The way he used Assyria to, to judge Israel. Egypt, many times God would use foreign powers, wicked powers, allowing them, to his own people, to experience the consequences of sin. Now this man, this wicked man, prospered in everything that he did, and as the scripture said, the truth of God was thrown to the ground. Now that's interesting because I think it's both literal and and... Uh, A metaphor, because think of the truth of God was thrown to the ground. When they took those Torahs, the, the actual truth of God, and they invaded the temple and they threw them to the ground and burned them, they were fulfilling that scripture. The Maccabees. I want to talk a little bit about these guys. The Maccabees remained faithful to God and they assisted Antiochus Epiphanes with their very or excuse me, they resisted Antiochus Epiphanes with their very lives. While the other Jews, the rebellious Jews, assisted him, they resisted him. And they wisely instructed many of their fellow Jews. They were martyred by the northern uh, people uh, called the Seleucidae. They were the northern uh, Greeks. They were martyred by them, and these Maccabees, they were guerrilla warriors. They suffered greatly under the hand of this vicious tyrant. And they gained some support in Israel among the Jews, but there were still Jews that were treacherous. Well, the Jews stumbled in order to be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the time of the end in a few minutes, but that's something that's still yet future for us. The time of the end hasn't begun yet. So they're talking about the time of the end in the, in the distant past, but it hasn't happened yet. We're not there yet. So this is something that was prophesied, it took place, I've shared with you how, but the complete fulfillment of this prophecy will still come at God's appointed time, the time of the end. Now, Antiochus persecuted the Jews until he was destroyed by God's judgment. And back when we were in chapter 8 of Daniel, I shared how this guy met his end, and it's a little gory, maybe PG-13, not quite rated R. But I'll tell you what, I have to mention it because I take great comfort And maybe it's because I'm Sicilian. I take great comfort in knowing the bad guys get it. I'm not ashamed to say that. Because if you read the book of Revelation, the bad guys get it. I didn't write the book of Revelation. Jesus gave that to John. There are people in history that repent like Nebuchadnezzar, and we we praise God, but there are people like Pharaoh who don't, and they get it. And you need to understand that God is a merciful God, but he couldn't be a just God if the bad guys didn't get it. So here's what happened. The Lord struck him with an incurable and invisible plague. He was destroyed by God's judgment. He suffered a dreadful pain in his bowels and bitter torments in his inner organs. It was so bad that he fell from his chariot and his limbs were broken by the fall. So not only did he have this internal problem, now he has sort of all you know, these broken limbs. God really took him out. God can do that, you know. You, you know that, right? God can judge wickedness. Say amen if you know that God can judge wickedness. We don't like to see anybody suffer, well, if I'm honest. The enemies of God and his people don't have to suffer, but if they choose to be enemies, they're, you know what? I'm kind of okay with it. Suffer that they might repent, and if they don't repent, suffer God's judgment. I'm not being bloodthirsty about it. I'm being biblical, all right? So God can strike our leaders if he wants to. He hasn't chosen to, well, not completely. Some have been taken out. But for the most part, God can deal with our leaders. And you need to not necessarily pray that they be destroyed. But how about pray that they repent? And if they don't repent, be destroyed. How about that? Because they're wicked. They're evil. They're promoting wicked, evil things, ungodly things. And, and, and what, you're going to sit by? Who here is going to pray for the well-being of Vladimir Putin? Who, who here is going to do that? No, no. you're going to say, Lord, may he repent or strike him dead because of the horror that he's inflicting upon the people in the Ukraine. Of course you're going to pray that way. You, if you prayed any other way, you wouldn't have a brain. So I'm just trying to make that point. But here's what happened to this guy. Worms swarmed out of his body. He lived in sorrow and pain. His flesh literally fell off of his body. And, it, and, and the historians describe it in this way. The filthiness of his smell was intolerable to all others and even himself. He died a miserable death in a strange country among the mountains. I say goodbye, good riddance. Well, there you go. And the same is going to happen to the Antichrist that will come. The Antichrist, there are actually two. And you have to be okay with God's judgment when he brings it, because he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That means you and I, we don't take that in our hands. We trust God with it. And you have to trust God. But the Maccabees and their descendants ruled Israel until it was conquered by the Romans in about 65 BC. So there you have all the history that Daniel gave us that was fulfilled. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. We still have to look at the future fulfillment of of the themes that these things presented to us. And that's what we begin to do in verse 36. Now in verse 36, and we'll get through as much as we can this morning, uh, we read about a king who's also called the king of the north, but he's a king that shows up in the time of the end. And I want to share a few things and sort of recap so you'll remember what the scripture said in Daniel 8, shadowing the king that will come. So we're we're not talking about Antiochus anymore and yet we kind of are because Antiochus was a symbol of the Antichrist that would come, I'm going to point out the things that were true about Antiochus that will be true of the Antichrist in the last days, just as a reminder as we go forward. The angel revealed to Daniel that a king of the north who exalts himself would appear. Now, Antiochus is that type, but there are two Antichrists who will rise up in the last days. We'll talk about them in explicit detail in a few weeks when we begin our study in the book of Revelation. But Daniel identifies this Antichrist with that little horn that came up out of one of the horns of the goat in chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. Again, we're told he would start small, grow in power to the south and to the east and toward Israel. That we know. We're told he will grow in power until he reaches the angelic host of the heavens. So, there's a spiritual element to this. He will throw down some of the angelic starry host. And he'll throw them down to earth and trample on them. So, we're talking about more than a man here. We're talking about demonic, satanic power here. He's going to set himself up to be as great as the Son of God, who is the true prince of the host. He'll take away the daily sacrifice from God and bring low the place of the sanctuary. And again, we're looking future now, our future. The host of the saints and the daily sacrifice will be given over to him because of their rebellion, as we've said. He's going to prosper in everything he does. That means he's going to be successful. And truth will be thrown to the ground. I mean, I think we're already there, right? Have you checked out the mainstream media? Truth was thrown to the ground years ago. But that's what we can expect more of in the future. He will be a stern-faced king and a master of intrigue. That means he's going to be a very vicious individual. He's going to become strong, not by his own power. His power is going to be given to him, and he's going to get that power through deception. He will cause astounding devastation in Israel and succeed in whatever he does against the Jews. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people of Israel. He will cause deceit to prosper and consider himself superior to all others, and he will destroy the Jews by deceiving them into a false sense of security. These are the things that Antiochus has in common or had in common with the future Antichrist, but these are things that have yet to be fulfilled. Now, he will take his stand against the Son of God, who is our great high priest and the prince of princes, and he will ultimately be destroyed. That's the good news. This man will ultimately be destroyed by God's judgment, just the way Antiochus was. Now, Daniel later identified, or we've already studied it in Daniel 9, he identified him as a ruler that will set up the abomination of desolation. So that has yet to come. And as I've said, Jesus referred to a still future fulfillment of this prophecy in Matthew 24. So you can't say that's all past. It's Yes, is it past? Is it future? Yes. Both are true. Daniel identifies him as a king who will exalt himself in this chapter, which we're about to read this section. Paul calls him a man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. John calls him the second beast and the false prophet in the book of Revelation in chapter 13. So there's a lot written about this individual. And like Antiochus, the false prophet or second beast will be destroyed by God himself. Praise God. Nobody's going to Is anybody going to pray for the antichrist? Oh. We really, you know, we'd like to see him in church on Sunday. Let's be real. No. No. You want to see God's judgment come against antichrists. And we're, talking about, we're not talking about people that are ever going to repent. We're talking about wickedness on a level that you and I can't even understand. So are you going to pray for that? No, you're going to pray for God's judgment against that. And that's okay. You're not going to do it, but you're going to pray that God does it in his time. Amen? Okay, so I'm, I want us to get the right heart here. I don't want us to become bloodthirsty, but I want us to look for God's judgment. Because of righteousness and truth. Now, the coming Antichrist will be a great and powerful king. He's going to be a blasphemous ruler. Look at verses 36 and 37. We're told the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but he will exalt himself above them all. So in those two verses, we learn there's an Antichrist who's coming that that is going to present himself in this way, a great and powerful king, a blasphemous ruler. And we have some pretty wicked rulers in our day today, but I don't know that we have seen this yet. Is that encouraging? Well, not so much, because the world is going to become a darker place before the time of the end. There's coming upon the world a time of wrath and the time of the end, and I'm going to get to that in just a minute. This man will do as he pleases. He will magnify himself above all gods. By the way, some have said that he will be a Muslim, but that's not true, because a true Muslim would show respect for Allah, and he doesn't. Some say he'll be a true Jew or Christian, but he's going to blaspheme the true God of gods. So we know he won't be any of those things. And he will succeed, we're told, in his plans until God has completely poured out his wrath on the earth. There is coming a time of judgment. God is going to pour out his wrath on the earth, not on his people. Can I hear an amen? Now, if you're of the school that believes that God's people, the church, will be here during this time, God will protect you, even if you're here. If you're of the school, like myself, who believes that we'll be taken out of this world, raptured, Some believe before it happens, some believe before the wrath is poured out, but regardless, God will protect you. God doesn't pour out his wrath on his people. He poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross so that you would never have to experience it. It is finished. Can I hear an amen? So you know that. I mean, even Lot was taken out of Sodom because, as we know, Abraham found out. Can't judge the righteous with the wicked. So don't worry about you experiencing the wrath of God. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you will never, ever experience the wrath of God. Because he took upon himself the wrath of God, his Father, to save you from your sins. And all you need to do is exercise faith to as many as received him. To those that believed on his name, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. Are you a child of God today? That's where you say amen. And if you're a Pentecostal, you would know that. Are you a child of God? Amen. Amen. So he's going to succeed. This wicked man's going to succeed. But I want to share with you what the Bible tells us about the time of the end. The time of the end is a seven-year time period known as Daniel's 70th week. If you want more information about what we're talking about, you've got to go back to our study in Daniel chapter 9, which is online, and you can find on various different streaming sites on our, on our front page of our website. But here's what you need to know. It's a seven-year time period. But the time of wrath is a a three-and-a-half-year time period, which is the second half of that seven-year period known as the time of the end. Time of the end? The end of the time of the end is called the time of wrath. So we hear those things mentioned here because we're talking about things that take place in the time of the end and in the time of wrath. That is when God pours out his wrath christ rejecting world. This man, this Antichrist, is going to stay in power until the end of that seven-year time period. God has determined that these things should happen. There is nothing you're going to do to prevent it. No amount of petitions, no campaign, no politician, no amount of prayer is going to prevent this from happening because it has been ordained to happen. Oh, I, I just, I'm praying the Antichrist would never come. You're wasting your breath. He's coming. What should you be praying for? That people who don't know him come to know him before the Antichrist appears. Right? Okay. We're told he will show no regard for any of the known gods. There are a lot of gods worshipped in the Middle East, still are today, but he's going to magnify himself above all of those gods. He's going to betray his ancestors. He's going to disregard the god of his fathers. He may be from a Middle Eastern polytheistic culture. We don't know. I can only guess But he may even be a Jew, a Jew who disregards God. More than likely, that's true. There are reasons I believe that, but I can't prove it. It's just my idea. He's going to disregard the one desired by women. Now, people see this, and I've heard people say all kinds of wacky things when they read this. You do a little research, you find out a few things. There are two things that could be true. I'm not entirely sure which, but I kind of prefer the first When it says this, and again, we don't know the answers to all these questions. These are prophecies that haven't been fulfilled. So, right, when it happens, we'll know for sure, right? Oh, that's what it means. You're not going to be able to predict all the things that haven't happened yet, just like the people couldn't predict the things that were predicted that happened already. We're not going to be able to predict the things that haven't happened yet. But we can kind of look at it and say, well, what could it mean? And that's all I'm going to share with you. Uh, This may be the pagan male god tamus also known as adonis and this was a god that was worshipped by women not hard to imagine why so this comes up in ezekiel chapter 8 so could it be that they're referring to a very popular greek god at that time well not at the time that 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 daniel was living but at the time the greeks would take over maybe or maybe in the future, or maybe it's something completely different we can't even imagine because it hasn't been revealed yet. But one of the things that's been suggested, and it's kind of interesting, I don't know that it's true, but it's interesting, it may even be a reference to the coming of Messiah because the Jewish women at this time were all desiring to give birth to the Messiah. They were all looking for the virgin who would, who would give birth to the son, Emmanuel. They were looking forward to Messiah's coming, and so the one desired by women may be those... Jewish women who desired to be the woman who was chosen, like Mary was chosen, to give birth to Jesus. But hey, guess what? We'll find out. Okay? So maybe maybe he doesn't worship Jesus, maybe he doesn't worship Adonis. He doesn't worship anybody. He wants to receive worship. The rest is, is insignificant detail to us at the moment. Let's continue. In verses 38 and 39, we're told the coming Antichrist will be a faithful servant to a foreign god. Ooh, okay. He's going to serve a foreign god. It's interesting. That's an interesting phrase. A foreign god who is also a ruthless dictator. And we read about him in verse, we read about this situation, the circumstances, in verse 38. Instead of them, that is all the gods we just talked about, false and true, all the gods... That we talked about, he's going to ignore because it says instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses, that is, a God of strength, human strength. A God unknown to his fathers, he will honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the fortresses, the mightiest fortresses, with the help of a foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land, that's the land of Israel, at a price going to take the land of Israel and give it to his supporters so see what, what you're seeing here what's very clear is that there is coming a time when God is going to allow evil to triumph on the earth I know some of you might be thinking we're in that time right now we're not the things we're experiencing though are themes they're foreshadowings of things that will happen in the future but we're not there yet not yet and I'm glad to say, I don't believe we will be for some time, but there are things that have to happen before these things can be fulfilled. For example, if he's going to desecrate the temple, which we've already been told, would there need to be a Jewish temple in Jerusalem? I mean, that's just logic. I don't think you have to think that through too difficultly. Right? That's, that's pretty obvious. Is there a temple in Jerusalem right now? No. So we know it's not going to happen tomorrow, but it could happen soon. So as we read this, we're learning some things. We learn that, that this... Individual honors a god of fortresses unknown to his ancestors. Now, this god, and I put that lower G in that word, appears to be a living person with godlike qualities and strength, and he's talked about in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. This individual, called the false prophet or the second beast, pays tribute to this god referred to as the first beast. So, there are two antichrists, and he doesn't pay tribute to anyone else. He will attack the mightiest powers on earth with the help of this individual called the foreign god. He's no god, but he pretends to be. He's going to be a military commander in service to a godlike power. He's talked about in Daniel 7, and he's the little horn that came up out of the beast that represented Rome. There's a Grecian little horn and a Roman little horn, and they are both the two beasts of Revelation. Now, he's going to be that Roman leader. He's going to make a covenant with Israel for seven years. Interesting, seven years. That's the last seven years of Israel's prophetic history that has yet to be fulfilled. That prophetic clock will start again after the seven-year covenant is confirmed by him. Now, what happened with the prophecy that Daniel received in Daniel 9, it went on until Christ was rejected, and then it's like a chess clock. It just stopped. 69 of the the uh, 70 weeks have been fulfilled, and now there's this last seven-year time period talked about by Daniel— revealed to Daniel, that has yet to be fulfilled. So that's why we talk about a time of the end being seven years. That comes up over and over again in Scripture. This man will, a- along with the second beast, put an end to sacrifice, offering uh, at the rebuilt, uh, an offering at the rebuilt temple of Jerusalem. And he's going to do that after three and a half years. So he's going to make an agreement for seven years. What do I think that agreement will be? I can guess. It probably has something to do with the temple or rebuilding it, I'm not sure. But whatever the agreement is, it's going to be an agreement of peace, a seven-year agreement. At the end of that seven-year agreement, or not at the end, halfway through, in three and a half years in, he's going to welch on the deal, and he's going to destroy the temple. That's what we're told. And so he's going to cause that abomination that causes desolation. So he will ultimately be destroyed by God after the final three and a half years of Daniel's 490-year prophecy. Why do I say 490 years? 70 times 7. Okay, so the numbers add up. All of that is talked about. The destruction of the Antichrist in Revelation 19. We'll get there in a few months. This foreign god, let's talk a little bit about that, because it's a different individual than the one that Antiochus Epiphanes typified. This foreign god will speak against the Most High and oppressor saints. This is talked about in Daniel 7, verse 25. He's going to try to change the set times and the laws. That is, the set times and the laws of the Jewish temple. All of this was revealed to the Jews because it concerns their temple. It concerns Jerusalem. It concerns them as a people. And so he's going to try to change all of that, completely destroy Judaism during this time. And, of course, he won't be successful, but he will have some success in persecuting God's people. The saints of the Most High will be handed over to him for three and a half years. And these are clearly the tribulation saints that, ex- that, that live during the second half of that 70th week. These are not church saints, by my estimation. In either of the, let's th- see, you've got three major theories about the rapture of the church. Not that whether there'll be a rapture of the church, because I think that is clear. The scripture talks about a rapture of the church. Uh, being caught away in Greek, in, in Latin, is r- uh, raptures, rapturous. So there is a rapture. The three common theories are that the church is taken out of the world before this seven-year time period begins. Another theory is that the church is taken out of the world before the last three and a half years of that seven-year time period begins. And then there's a final theory which says that the church goes all the way through that time, they're protected by God, and then they're taken out of the world right before Christ comes again. So I guess that would be like a very brief rapture, go up, come down. Like kids playing on the elevator, I guess. So I, I don't know. I, I subscribe to either of the first two theories because I really do believe those are true. But I, if I have to pick one and I happen to pick one, it's the pre-tribulation rapture. I, I, I am a Calvary Chapel pastor. That's how we teach. But listen, I'm the first one to tell you I don't know what's going to happen. Okay, I've shared with you theories. All right, so let's not get caught up in who's right, who's wrong. We don't know what's going to happen. We just know what the scripture reveals. Amen? Okay, so I know that's a lot of information, but let's uh, wrap things up. And I think what we'll do, because I I don't want to rush through this stuff. There's a lot to cover. I think what we'll do is close things out right now, because what I'd like to do is I'd like to spend a little time next week, just in the latter part of chapter 11 and going into chapter 12, the remainder of this vision that Daniel receives, it deals with the angel telling us the things that will happen, how all of the details of what we've talked about in summary will actually transpire, will actually take place. If I try to get into it now, your brains are like sponges, you know, they super saturate, and you get to a place where you're like, blah, 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 you know, that's all you hear, and, and listen, we don't want that. So just taking a pin and putting a pin in it right now, let's just stop for a minute, what have we learned? The theme of the book of Daniel is God is sovereign, or if you like, God is in control. If things have happened in the past, things will happen in the future. We'll talk about the details of that next week, or actually in two weeks. We have a guest speaker next week. So here, here's the thing. When we get to the final verses of this chapter and into chapter 12, you're going to learn a little bit more detail, but it's not going to change the basic truth that God is in control. Amen? Amen. Is God in control when the wrong person gets in the White House? Amen. Is God in control when our our society goes nuts and our culture starts to believe all kinds of lies? Is God in control when the media seems to have control? Yeah. Is God in control as Nancy Pelosi's the speaker of the house? Is God in control in Taiwan? Is God in control in North Korea? you see my point? We know something many people in Washington don't know. God is in control. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are in control. And as we go through this somewhat difficult chapter to study, we've learned that over and over again in multiple ways. And, and, and we're learning things now about the future, things that haven't happened yet, but still you're in control. But the most important question we need to answer is, have we given the control of our lives to you? And we have to answer that for ourselves, Lord. To as many as received him, to those that believed on his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. I pray that every heart today recognizes that death on the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, as payment for their sins because they're sinners and they need salvation. I pray that every person here today would go home knowing that no matter what happens to them on this planet, they're going to spend an eternity with you because of what Jesus did for us. As we repent of our sins, as we ask for forgiveness, as we confess our sins, we know Jesus died on the cross for our sins. rose again on the third day and is coming again to defeat the Antichrist and all the powers of evil on this earth, and we're going to rule and reign with him for all eternity because of our faith in him. May every heart today know that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.